Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you have revealed this truth to us, uh, that you have called us by name. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to see with great clarity uh, what is true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Many uh, commentators, many theologians think that this is the beginning of the end, of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus lands the plane, right? This is where he is coming to a close. And we're going to begin with verse 13. And we'll read through verse 23. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everything is black and white. Have you ever said that before? Not everything is always so black and white, right? Not everything is always so easy to define as right and wrong. What do we mean when we say that, that not everything is so black and white? Well, a lot of times it's said in the midst of an argument, (laughs) one that we don't want to be pinned down on what exactly we're saying. We're, We're trying to point out that can't there be some gray here? Can't there be a little bit ambiguity? It's a statement that really has defined our culture in so many ways. Not everything is always so black and white. 1966, a French philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida gave a lecture at Johns Hopkins University called Structure, Sign, and Play. And in that lecture, he argued that traditional philosophy, traditional thought for centuries, always had an assumption that there is some kind of center some kind of orienting ultimate truth. That thing is usually God. And because we have traditionally, as a culture, as a society, believed in God, that that central idea has really informed all of philosophy. That all of thinking, all of humanity has always had the assumption that because there is a God, everything we think about, everything that we do, orients around that. But in 1966, what Derrida said is, there is no God, and because there is no God, then our world of philosophy should completely change. Because if there is no God, then there is no center. And everything that we now think as philosophers, as people, as humans, is completely open to interpretation. In other words, 
1966, that lecture became a watershed moment in the world of philosophy. There's no such thing as ultimate truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing. If, if there is no God, there is no truth. And if there is no truth, then we are free to think, and his argument, creatively, everything that we do, everything that we say is up for interpretation. Another of his contemporaries, also a French philosopher, Jean Baudrillard, coined a term. He called it hyperrealism. What he said is that really our world is now defined by things that are even more real than what real is. All right, I know this is too early for this, but I want you to hang with me because it's incredibly important. Because what these guys, what you see in especially postmodern philosophy is, is they weren't just prescribing something. They were actually describing what they saw. <laughs> they were recognizing this is what's happening in our world. And hyperrealism is really this, the, the most simple way I could put it. Not only is there not absolute truth, but truth is defined more by what you see than the substance. Image is everything. Right? So in a world in Dallas, right? I don't know if you've heard of the $30,000 millionaire. Right? The person who makes thirty grand, but lives a lifestyle that, of a millionaire because image is everything. That's hyperrealism. Right? Or you think about um, uh, reality television. How real is reality television? It's not real at all. But that's what's projected, and that's what we feed off of. Or think of our current political climate, right? Where image is everything. We crave the image even more than the substance. Not everything is always so black and white. We live in a world where things are ambiguous, both morally, and we talked about that a couple weeks, moral ambiguity, but also factual, objectively, where not everything is always so black and white. And yes, we could describe all of this in our world today, and we could say, well, that's what the postmodern world is. But I would argue that this is the way our world has always been, that where a people have rejected God and his kingdom, everything goes out the window. And it is in this world of ambiguity that Jesus speaks with stunning clarity for us this morning. And he describes this ambiguity really in three ways, and three ways that for us are going to be served both as warnings, both as warnings, but also an invitation, an invitation to follow him, to take up our cross and truly follow Christ. And so the three ways that Jesus defines this ambiguity is this. We're going to see uh, three different kinds of falseness. The first is false paths. False paths. Secondly, we will look at false prophets. And third, we'll look at false professions. And it's in the midst of this ambiguity of right and wrong, of true and false, that Jesus will speak the gospel, will speak the truth, with absolute certainty, absolute clarity. Okay, so first, false pass. Look at with me verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. The, the, the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Okay, so Jesus is talking about two paths in life, right? 
a true path and a false path. And each path is fed by a gate. And the gate of the path of destruction is wide and very easy to get through. And the gate on the path to the kingdom of heaven is very narrow and it's hard. My wife and I, we live on the M streets. And if you know anything about the M streets, you know most of the houses have detached uh, garages. Ours is certainly true. Uh, So we have this detached garage and um, struggle whether or not, she probably won't listen to this. Um, This is probably not good. so she, um, she accidentally backed into our gate, right? It was an old chain leak fence. And so because it was broken, we need a new gate, right? So we got what is very common on the M streets. Uh, everybody has them. Uh, so we, we just got to keep up with everybody else. Big, fancy electric gate, right? It's awesome. Cast iron, electric gate. You know, you can type in a code, it opens. You can push a button, it opens. All right. Well, if you know anything else about the M streets is that the lots are really small. And so we have this big, fancy electric gate that's really hard to get through (laughs) because it's very narrow. It's very narrow, and you have to drive really, really slow. We've got to bring the um, rear view mirrors in to get through it. (laughs) And it's funny, uh, we were talking with our our gate builder, and he's saying, well, you could make it wider. You could make it wider if you put all of the mechanics on the outside of the fence. Well, if you put all the mechanics on the outside of the fence, then somebody can just walk up and push the button <laughs> and just get in. And it's funny, I was thinking about this and thinking even about this passage and, and thinking, you know, yeah, the, the wider we make our gate leads to a path of destruction. <laughs> it's easier for us to get into, but anybody could just walk up and just open our gate. And so we're just going to have to learn to go through a narrow gate. That's just the way it is. We're, we're going to have to learn to drive with great precision through our big, fancy, very narrow gate. I want you to think this morning, it's a question at your tables. Why is it so easy, so easy for us to sin? So easy, so accessible, the kingdom of destruction. Why is it so difficult for us to do the very thing that we want to do as believers, which is to seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness? Paul, in Ephesians, talks about the kingdom of destruction this way, the way that leads to destruction. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, you followed the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work with the sons of disobedience among whom you all lived with passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind. You were by nature children of wrath. You were on a path to destruction. And Jesus this morning is giving us a warning. It's a very easy path to walk down. The gate is wide. It's an inviting path, at least on the outside. It looks good to the eyes, right? looks well-traveled by other people. In fact, you probably have seen other friends go down that very path and thought, well, why did I not just go with them? And Jesus this morning is warning us, hey, it looks good. It's wide, it's easy to go down, and it leads to destruction. But there is a gate that is narrow. There is a path that leads to life. But it's hard, and it's costly you remember, again, it's right here. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added to you.
That is our call as men this morning, to go through the narrow gate, go down the hard and difficult path, or how Jesus put it in Matthew 16, later in the book of Matthew, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but ever who loses his life for my sake will find it. So what do these paths look like for us? I think that's our wrestle this morning and something I want you to wrestle at your table. But I, I've, one of the most helpful books for me in thinking about this is, is a, a great book. A great book by Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. And he talks about cheap grace in this way. He says, cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. That's the easy path, right? Just go down the easy gate, the easy path, and you know what? You'll be forgiven. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You, that's the beautiful thing about Christianity, right? You just keep on sinning, keep on doing what you want, and there's forgiveness at the end of the path. What Bonhoeffer says is that's cheap. You're cheapening the cross. You're cheapening grace. He says real grace is actually costly. It costs us something. It's costly because of this. This is what he says. He says, it's costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives the man only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the Son his life, and we were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So yes, grace, the gospel, it is free to all who would believe. But Jesus this morning is giving us a warning. And the warning is this. Seeking first the kingdom of God is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your sin. It's going to cost you your sinful desires. You might have to give up things that your flesh would rather not give up. But at the end of that path is the kingdom of heaven itself. But it's difficult for us to see in a world of ambiguity. All right? Not everything's always black and white, right? At least to our eyes. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, there is a narrow gate. It's hard to get through but it leads to everlasting life. Second, he also warns of false prophets. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I wonder, do you know any prophets? Do you know any false prophets? I wish to start there. I think a lot of times we hear these words, especially today, and think, okay, well, I'm just going to skip over this part. <laughs> I don't know a lot of prophets, and so if I don't know a lot of prophets, then I probably don't know a lot of false prophets, let alone true ones. But I really want you to understand a little bit about what prophecy is biblically. It's not just about foretelling the future. A lot of times that's what enters into our minds when we hear the word prophecy. I think, well, I don't know a lot of fortune tellers who are you know, just trying to make a cheap buck, right? I mean... What, what do you mean by prophets? It's not just about telling the future, it's about telling the truth. Right? Not just telling the 
future. But biblically speaking, a prophet was one who spoke the truth, the truth of God himself. A prophet in the Bible was someone who spoke for God, spoke on his behalf. So let me ask it again. Do you know many people who claim to speak for God? Yeah, we do, don't we? Both inside and outside the church, there are many, many false prophets in our culture. Outside the church, deny God's existence, right? Who claim to know the truth about God, that He is not real, and therefore are now speaking falsely on His behalf, right? And this should not be a surprise to us. Uh, Again, Paul warned us of this in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? We are up against great darkness. We always have been as the church. And as long as there has been a church speaking the truth of Jesus Christ, there has been the forces of darkness speaking falsely about who God is. False prophets. But we're also told, and I think this is what Jesus is talking about, that there are also false prophets who claim to come from within the church. And Paul warned of this in Acts. Acts 20, verse 30. It's frightening. But Paul warned us, he said, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's saying, hey, from, from your own church, there will be people who will come up who claim to speak the truth. And it's not going to be like outside the church where they're going to just deny the truth of the gospel flatly. It's going to be harder to see. It's going to be more ambiguous. Right? It's going to be a twisting of the truth, subtly, slightly. It's going to be compelling. And this is what Jesus is talking about. If you continue to read on, verse 16, he says, You're going to recognize these false prophets by their fruits. Right? Grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. All right? They are, he calls, sheeps, right? They look like sheep in in clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, right? They look good. What they say might seem compelling, but deep down their fruit, their fruit, it's deadly. It's deadly. And so how do you spot this? How do you spot a false prophet in our culture? How do you do that? It's a great question for you to wrestle with together. But I wanted to give you an example, an example from the Bible. And it's from a a book I know you all probably pour over every single day, 3 John. Read a lot of 3 John. 3 John, there's only one chapter in 3 John. It makes it pretty easy. This is verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, there's our example, a false prophet from within the church, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. 
And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So you have this man named Diotrephes, a leader in the church, who is putting himself first, so much so that he was speaking falsely about Paul, falsely about the apostles, and he was refusing to let other people into the community of faith. That is a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's a false prophet. And I want to submit to you this morning that there are many false prophets in our culture. And we need to learn, we need to have the ability to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. Not only as men who are called to lead the church, but we need to recognize that this seeps into our very church, even right here at PCPC, in ways that you would not expect. The way our culture can sometimes orient our thinking more than we are even aware of. I'll give you another example. And this is from the 30s. One of my favorite, favorite quotes. Uh, it was huge for me in seminary. In seminary, I was searching so hard, trying to figure out what I was seeing in the world around me in some explanation. Um, I felt very much what I explained at the very beginning of this lesson, just this reality of no absolute truth. Uh, the people I just graduated from college and uh, was a philosophy student and not only learned all of this, but interacted with people who bought this, I mean, lived by it. And so how do you preach the gospel in that kind of world? And I couldn't find very many answers, at least in the church, at least that I saw, until I came upon a, a great theologian who's not flashy, but he's well worth your time, B.B. Warfield. And he wrote an article called Christless Christianity. And it was back in the 30s that he noticed something, that what was beginning to brew in American Christianity was a Christianity without Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, how would that be possible? This is how he describes it. A Christianity without redemption. Redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin is nothing less than a contradiction in terms. Precisely what Christianity means is redemption in the blood of Jesus. No one need wonder, therefore, that when redemption is no longer sought and found in Jesus, men should begin to ask whether there remains any real necessity for Jesus at all. We may fairly contend that the germ of Christless Christianity is present wherever a proper doctrine of redemption has fallen away and passed out of sight. Of course, in the meantime, some other function than proper redemption may be found for Jesus. It's that last line. Some other some other function of redemption will be found other than Jesus. That's false prophecy. So any time that we find ourselves seeking redemption in something other than the cross, that's false prophecy. That's not the truth. So if I or any other pastor say, hey, this is what you, if you leave today and you think, hey, this is what you need to do on your own in order to redeem yourself, that's false prophecy. That is speaking falsely about the truth, and it's twisting it, distorting it. 
That's why our cry here at PCPC has always been only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. Christ crucified is all we proclaim, all we will proclaim, all we pray we will always proclaim. He is crucified, he died, and he rose again that you would have life. You cannot redeem yourself. You've only been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly, where we'll end, we'll go to your tables. He talks about false professions. False professions. So not only are there false prophets out there, Jesus warns, there's also false professions, and this is where it gets even more painful for us. Jesus says in verse 21, he says, Not any, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does my will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If that does not fill you with at least a little bit of holy fear, then I would, I would stop and think real deeply this morning about yourself and about who you believe God to be. We should all shudder just a little bit as we read those words. But at, in a second, I'm going to show you why you can know absolutely who you are and whose you are in Christ this morning. But you can, you can envision this, right? These words of Jesus, you can picture this, right? This man who says, didn't I do all of these things in your name? You notice just a hint of false prophecy there, right? False truth. Didn't I do all of this for you? And Jesus says, I never knew you. We must be very careful about what we think Christianity is and what, it is, what we think it's all about. Here's this man saying, I've done all of this. I've done all of this. And Jesus says, I never knew you. 2009 uh, American Religious Identification Survey. You don't have to remember that at all. Uh, this is what it found, though, and this is, shouldn't be new to you. We've, we've probably talked about this here. You've heard this uh, before, that self-identified Christians in the United States had fallen 10 percentage points. Okay, so 86% to 96 in 19, since 1990. Okay, so in just, uh, what is that, about 20 years, it fallen 10 percentage points. And more than that, this is what it found, that it showed that the nuns, right, so I've talked about the nuns before. This is not like a nun, like a Catholic nun, but N-O-N-E nun. Those who would check none on the box of religion, you know, your religion. I'm going to put, put none. Well, it was in 1998 percent, and in 2009 it had risen to 15%. And that was what was more striking. It was not just that people were no longer self-identifying as Christians. It's that now more and more people seem very content to say, look, I'm nothing. I'm not even going to claim anything, and I'm great with that. And I'm not even worried about what you're going to think of me anymore. That now that there's no pretense anymore for saying, I don't believe in anything. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm nothing, right? I'm a nun. And um, a, a lot of ink and uh, you know, breath has been spent trying to understand this and trying to solve the problem talking about you know, how terrible this is. And if you were here this last Sunday, you heard Mark 
just before new members join, say something I think is absolutely true. And it's that the church is not dying. The church is not dying. And we know this is true because we know the end of the story, right? We know that one day Jesus Christ will return for his church. But even statistically speaking, we know this is not true. And I want to just read you, this is a quote from Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer is a pastor, but he's also a statistician. Uh, I love people like that because it's something I could never wrap my head around. But he loves stats, right? He loves just minutia. But this is what he thinks about these findings. He says this, quote, The church is not dying. It's just becoming more clearly defined. Okay, the church is not dying. It's becoming more clearly defined. The nuns category is growing quickly, but the change is coming by way of cultural Christians who no longer feel the societal pressure to be Christian. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying our culture, the pretense, the pressure, has changed so much that now there's no longer a cultural benefit to call yourself a Christian. And so what you're seeing is the reason why these percentage points are changing is not because Christians are leaving the faith, because people who identified with Christianity culturally no longer see a cultural benefit to saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Does that make sense? So he goes on, this is what he says. He says, they, they feel comfortable freeing themselves from a label that was never true of them in the first place. Christians find themselves more and more on the margins in American society. People are beginning to count the cost. And while it used to serve Americans well to carry the label Christian in most circumstances, it can actually be polarizing or intolerant now. So for those who really don't have any skin in the game, shedding the label Christian makes sense. ambiguity, right, of what is a Christian, what is not a Christian. Jesus is saying there is such a thing as a false profession, a faith, that there are going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I just do all of this in your name? And Jesus is going to say, I, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, I never knew you. More and more we're seeing what it means to count the cost. Right? What true faith really is. Yes, is it free? Yes, is it a gift? But faith costs us something, doesn't it? And we know that to be true. It costs us our very life. And so what do we do with that this morning? You know, if we just stop there, right, we might leave a little bit uh, afraid. <laughs> we might leave a little bit depressed. But I want, to, I want to point out something to you as we end and go to our tables. And it's the very last thing he says in verse 23. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Obviously, that's a very negative statement. I never knew you. But what I want you to see this morning is that this morning, if you wonder, could I be one of the ones, a worker of lawlessness? Is that me? How can I know for certainty how can I know what is truth? How, how can I know that I am on the path that is narrow? How can I know that I have listened to what is true and not what is false? How can I know that my profession of faith is credible? This is 1 John. This is the testimony, 1 John 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son? And does the Son know you? 
It's not about what you know. It's not about what you do. It's about what, whether or not Christ knows you. He says, I never knew you. But that also means that all those who are in Christ, He knows deeply and intimately and truly. And so the greatest truth that we could ever know in a world of ambiguity is that God Himself knows you truly and He knows you fully. And this is what He says in John. John 10, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of My hand. This morning, the good news is this. If Christ knows you, that means He knows all of you. <laughs> Scary, right? He knows all of you. He knows every bad part of you, every sin you've ever committed, everything that you are now trying to hide from one another at your table, right? Everything that I'm trying to hide from you, you cannot hide from God. He knows, and He loves you. And not only does He love you, but He knows you so well, and so intimately, and so fully, and so truly, that there is nothing that can snatch you out of His hand. Nothing. No false prophet. No false teaching. Right? No amount of wide open paths for you to run away down. Nothing can snatch you from His hand. The greatest truth that you could ever know is that Christ knows you. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus who does know us. He knows us firstly in the way that he lived as us, the way that he was tempted just like us, and the way that he died on the cross for us and then rose again that we could have life. Father, thank you that he also knows us intimately, personally, that each one of us in this room who are in Christ have been called son. We have been given a new name, a name that is written in heaven. And we are known so well that there is nothing that could snatch us out of your hand. Lord, thank you for that truth this morning. May we cling to that truth in an ambiguous world, a world that is fraught with relativism, and Father, may we delight in that truth today. Wherever we are pulled, whatever paths we are pulled down, whatever false prophecy we are enticed by, may we cling to the truth that we have been known by God Himself. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.